Nima Well, uh, let's get stuck into uh, the meat of James chapter 1. Um, let me read the whole of this chapter to you and then I'm going to ask David to come and speak to us again. James chapter 1. This is God's word. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. 
If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Amen. We give thanks to God for his word. Let's just pray together before David comes to speak. Father, we thank you for speaking to us already this morning. Thank you for uh, the helpful introduction and overview that David has given to us. We pray that you will once again engage our hearts and our minds as he opens up this first chapter. For all of this, and for him, we need the power of your spirit, and we thank you that you desire to give us that help as we come to your word. And so we humbly ask for that now, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much, Moore. Um so we're going to look, try and look at the whole of this chapter. I do want to say you might, if there's particular bits you might be wanting to look at in particular, you might end up disappointed. I'm not able to, we're not going to cover absolutely everything. Again, it's kind of big picture thinking for you to, hopefully to give you a, a handle on the whole book, for you to go away and copy Andy Gemmell as well. Um, what, 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 I, what I think you want to be doing in teaching James or Bible study leading James, you want to give people a vision of wholeness, don't you? You want to show people why it is attractive and beautiful. Um, I'm going to try and do more of that uh, this session, the first one. A few of you said to me how painful the first uh, talk was, how uncomfortable it is, and it is uncomfortable, isn't it? Um, that was the negative. I want to try and give you the positive. Um, the the chap- talk one was the disease. Here is what James is holding out as the positive. I hope you can understand why I use that Douglas Copeland quote, that the, 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 the thing inside us that just knows that we're split, and Douglas Copeland expresses that longing to be washed and clean and made whole. I, I never used this um, in, in my own sermons on James, but if, if you want a really good illustration, it's the voyage of the dawn treader, Eustace and the dragon, isn't it? If you know that beautiful story where he falls asleep on top of the gold, the gold, and because that's what his heart longs for, he wakes and finds himself turned into a dragon, and he, he's, he's trying and trying to get this off, and it, Aslan says, I need to rescue you, and Aslan begins to peel off the layers of skin, and it hurts more than words can say, and then he throws him into the water, and it's a beautiful, beautiful picture of redemption, of, of change that is not just skin deep, but heart deep. Um, that's the concept. I'm going to try and show you that in this talk. That's the concept of the Christian life uh, that, that James has. Um, so I, I, want, I want to begin by getting you to look at, to, to try and show you this, to look at verse 4 um, in chapter 1. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that, that, that word perfect there in verse 4, it, it, that word translates the Greek word teleos. And in fact, the same Greek word comes twice in verse 4. Let steadfast, 
Let steadfastness have its full or perfect effect, that you may be perfect. And James reinforces this idea of perfection with a similar word, complete, in verse 4, and then with the extra phrase, lacking in nothing. So it's so clear, isn't it? Let steadfastness reach its perfect effect, that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. It's a really comprehensive picture, isn't it, of total perfection. Um, another book that is really brilliant on James, it's, it's more academic than the, even Doug Moo's commentary and Dan Doriani's commentary. It's really expensive. It's really hard to get. Um, Richard Borkham, uh, who was New Testament professor in St. Andrews for a long time, has written a, a book. The publisher is Routledge, and I think it's just called James. But it is a wonderful study in the book of James. It's, it's devout, it's reverent, it's really perceptive. Uh, it's a great book to get hold of if you want to spend a lot of time in James. He, l- listen to Richard Borkham. He says, the teleos word group, okay, perfect, that word or words like it appear in James how many times? Any guesses? Seven, okay? And this, he says, is surely not accidental. Seven is the number of perfection and completeness in the Jewish Bible. Chapter 3, verse 17, this is still Bochum, James will sum up the wisdom from above in seven attributes. So the the word teleos, as well as as appearing twice in chapter 1, verse 4, it comes in chapter 1, verse 17, verse 25, chapter 2, verse 8, 22, and chapter 3, verse 2. Okay? Here is James's positive counterpart to the negative of being double-minded. James's word for what he wants us to be instead of not being is perfect. And to be perfect and complete means to be whole, spiritually whole. My, My splitness overcome, refined and refined and refined into oneness. James's word for Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and love the Lord your God with heart, soul, mind, and strength. One God, one worshiper, all of me for all of you, God. That for James is perfection, completeness. And I think, friends, in teaching it, that is not difficult to lay out to people, isn't it? Um, Apple, there, there is a better you in you. It's what everybody wants, isn't it? Everybody wants perfection, fitness, health, well-being. It is the absolute rage, isn't it? It's what everybody is seeking. I would love to be perfect and complete. My wife would love me to be perfect. Think how my kids would benefit if I was the complete package, not lacking anything. If Thursday mornings we gathered at the table and Every fruit of the Spirit was hanging from my branches. Be amazing, wouldn't it? Spiritually whole in patience, in love, in kindness, no longer pulled in two different directions. That, that is the vision James is giving us. That's why I've grouped all my thoughts and my sermons. The, the book that's coming out is called Radically Whole. That, that's what James is saying. Here's how to put all the bits together again. And and I think in teaching it, you want to give people that vision. This is what God wants 
for your life to be perfect. So I want to give you three things from chapter one. I did chapter one in two sermons. I'm trying to combine them into one here. Um, This is mainly from uh, one down to verse 18, I think. Uh, We'll see what, what we can do at the end if we've got time for the rest of chapter one. Three things to cure splitness, double-mindedness. Three things if you want to be whole. Number one, think clearly. Number two, ask boldly. And number three, boast rightly. Think clearly, ask boldly, boast rightly. We're gonna spend uh, nearly all our time, uh, most of our time on, on point one. If the goal is wholeness, okay, perfection, what, you need, what, what we want to do here is See how James works us backwards from that point to show us how to get there, okay? So if you look at verse 4, you can see this in verse 4. That's the goal, isn't it? Perfection, completeness. That's where God is taking us. But work backwards in verse 4 and verse 3 and verse 2. How do you get there? Well, verse 4, you need to let steadfastness have its full effect. So that's one thing. You need to be steadfast. How do you get steadfastness? Keep working backwards. Verse 3, you get it by your faith being tested. So you see the steps along the road to perfection? When you meet trials of various kinds, God is testing your faith. That will produce steadfastness, and that steadfastness will then lead to wholeness and completeness. So in a room like this, friends, it's really, it's, it's guaranteed, isn't it, that some of us are suffering today carrying a really heavy load, simply in being here. And maybe, maybe only somebody really close to you knows about it. Maybe nobody knows about it. But there's some trial in your life, something that has turned the temperature up. Verse 2, trials of various kinds, like a precious metal being tested in, in the heat. Your faith today, this very morning, is being tested. And many of us, I think, and certainly in our churches, in our fellowships, are in the crucible in one way or another, aren't they? If you're meeting a trial head-on or you've just rounded a bend in the road in your life and there's a, there's a great big roadblock in your way, there's a trial in your life at the minute, James is saying in verse 2, God is testing your faith to produce steadfastness to make you perfect and complete. And James is saying to us in this letter, if you want to get to the end of the road, if you want to be whole, if you want verse 12, the crown of life at the end that God has promised to those who love him, if you want that, then you need to think clearly about your trials. You need to engage your mind for when trials come, what is the the number one thing we do when trials arrive? We stop thinking. And we start feeling, don't we? Feeling only. But look at verse 2 again, the opening verb, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. We've worked all the way back from perfection to this first thing in verse 2. The first thing to do if you want to be whole is think clearly. Count it all joy. Another way of saying it is consider it joy or reckon it joy. Think about it. Use rational thought to understand how on earth could this be joyful? Isn't that astonishing? Count it, consider it, think it all joy. You notice he doesn't say feel it as joyful. 
We're, we're rarely joyful in our tears. He doesn't say, consider it happiness when you meet trials. No, there's a huge difference, isn't there, between happiness and joy. Happiness is circumstantial. It's here one minute, gone the next. But joy is the deep, settled knowledge that God is in this and that nothing he sends me, nothing is outside of his care. Nothing is wasted. Count it all joy, my brothers. What's the next word? When you meet, not if you meet trials, but when you meet trials. For one thing is certain, live long enough in this world and you will suffer. We will be bereaved or we will bereave others. We will enter circumstances that threaten to crush us. And yet, James says, there is a way of thinking about them that can bring joy into your heart. And the way to get that joy is to realize where God is taking you. What is the goal? Here's how God does it. Here's a beautiful illustration from C.S. Lewis. Some of you know this. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I want you to imagine yourself as a living house. Think of yourself as a building. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you know that those jobs needed doing, and so you are not surprised and you are glad for the work. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in ways that hurt abominably and do not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of. He is throwing out a new wing here. He's putting on an extra floor there. He's running up towers and making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace, and he intends to come and live in it himself. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says next. If we let him, God will make the feeblest and the filthy of us, of, us, of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. He will make us a bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly His own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for nothing less. Friends, you will know in your congregations that the people who are most palatial, not in where they actually live and worldly wealth, but the people in their character who are most palatial have spent long times in trial. Isn't that right? It's just how it works in God's economy. Not everybody suffers well and comes closer to Christ. People suffer badly all the time, of course. It can push people away. But the people in your congregation, the, whether young or old, who you know God is at work in their lives, there is suffering somewhere beneath the surface. And this is the big surprise in James about being radically whole. It, it is radical. The path to wholeness is soreness, is pain, now, here, here, here's, here's Douglas Moo in, in his commentary. James shows us that his aim is God's aim for his children, perfection. Here, here's, here's what Moo says, nothing less than complete 
moral integrity will ultimately satisfy the God who is Himself holy and righteous, completely set apart from sin. Now, here is where, remember I said Adolf Ulicker and James Dunn said that James is the, the least distinctively Christian book in the New Testament. It is so Jewish that it's not really Christian. Richard Baucom says, well, if that is true, well, the way that he says it is that actually James is as distinctively Christian as the Lord Jesus is distinctively Christian. In other words, James's teaching maps the teaching of the Lord Jesus so closely that if we're going to say the teaching of James is foreign to the New Testament, then the teaching of Jesus is foreign to the New Testament. What did Jesus say in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 48? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You must be mature, complete, spiritually whole, all your splitness refined into oneness. Now, here, here is where I think James, this vision of not being double-minded but being whole, ties into the whole big story of the Bible. Okay, some of you might know Jonathan Pennington. He's New Testament, uh, was New Testament lecturer at Southern Baptist Seminary. I don't know if he's still there. He has a brilliant study of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I, I think it's called the the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, a theological commentary. He 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 says this: one of the key ideas, if not the key idea, in the Sermon on the Mount that makes the whole sermon hang together is wholeness completeness, singular devotion. When Jesus says that we must be whole or complete as our heavenly Father is whole and complete, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, notice that comes after Jesus has outlined six ways in which a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees is required in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why are Pharisees hypocrites? Hypocrites because they are divided, aren't they? They are not unified in heart and action. They do the right things, but they are not the right people because their hearts are wrong. They are not pure in heart, and therefore they cannot see God. Okay, so James's vision here of perfection is not different from what is at the very heart of the teaching of the Lord Jesus. You can bring it all down to that. Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, you must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And what James is doing in chapter 1 is saying, look, if that end product is worth having, okay, then the pain along the way is worth enduring, isn't it? If you don't want to be whole, and you don't want what Douglas Copeland wanted of being made clean on the inside somehow, if you don't want every inner fracture healed, then you will not count trials as joy. So take the athlete who is training, running, pushing for the crown, like verse, verse 12, the crown of life. The athlete who wants the end goal of the podium to be theirs counts it joy to train, don't they? That, that's where this word steadfastness comes from. This word steadfastness actually takes you by the hand to the gym. The, the word steadfast means to remain under something and to remain under it successfully. So the bodybuilder who's under the weight, the weight of the bench press, facing resistance, James is saying, look, as, as faith pushes back against that heavy weight, 
Just as the muscle grows under the weight, so, so faith grows under the trial. And you only do that, don't you? Only keep sweating, keep pushing, keep hanging in there if you want the end product of the spiritual perfect body. Be perfect, Jesus said, as your heavenly Father is perfect. You want to be like God, one worshiper, whole, complete? Then God is going to put you under to bring you up to that. The trial of loneliness, the trial of unemployment, of unfulfilled sexual longing, the trial of bereavement, long-term sickness, disappointment, the, the, the trial, friends, of old age, body creaking, heart aching, friends departing, the trial of moving home in your old age, the trial of a difficult job, tedious, mind-numbing employment. Your faith is being tested in a difficult marriage. The trial of midlife crisis, middle-age depression. Your sexuality is uncertain. Your gender identity doesn't seem to be clear, and you don't know where to turn. R. Kent Hughes has a commentary in the book of James, and in his commentary in James, uh, he, he, he has this most wonderful illustration. Listen to this. Uh, these words aren't his. They're someone he's, he's citing. Most of us rebel against the things that irritate us. But we can learn from oysters who are wiser than us. When an irritating bit of sand gets under the mantle of its shell, the oyster covers it with the most precious part of its being and makes of it a pearl. The irritation that was so unwelcome and was causing upset, in fact, becomes the source of the oyster's great worth. A true pearl is therefore simply a victory over irritation. Every, every irritation that gets into our lives today is an invitation to pearl culture. I love that. Friends, James is writing about God's pearl culture. What, what, what's a pearl? A mature saint, complete, not lacking anything. And some of you today, are, you're just starting to get the sand in the eye, aren't you? And you're rubbing it and rub, you, you want it out. Get, take this away from me, Lord. And God is leaving it there. And so we're rubbing it even more furiously. Take it away, Lord. Didn't you hear me? We're wondering where he is and what he's doing. And James is here in his letter to teach us God's pearl culture, to, to help us to smother that irritation with the most precious part of us, with clear-eyed thinking. See what God is doing. See what God might be killing in you. What, think about what part of you God is knocking about and knocking together to make you into something whole, to sew together your divided soul. One of the things we try and do in our church family, I, we've started to get a lot of students, which is really wonderful, hugely encouraging, and really awful when I see students arrive and leave en masse together, and not getting to know all the ages in our congregation, not getting to know the, the, the widow who lost her husband for who she'd been married to for more decades than these students can even begin to imagine, and who's just sitting there with decades of God-honoring love and wisdom to lavish on them. Now, one of the things we try and do is try and 
connect people, don't we, in our fellowship, so that younger are cared for by older, so that the mature saints help young people to, to consider it all joy when God is testing them. I think it's a huge mistake to think that when we, when we get it all together, our trials will somehow lessen. It's what we think, isn't it? If we get the girl, we find the job, we pass the exam, if we get through this week ahead or the next month, we get through the illness, that will be us. Know that there are trials of various kinds right until we cross the, cross the finish line. God will keep sending them to us to keep maturing us and perfecting us. And I think that's a simple thing that we need to ask ourselves and ask our congregations and those we're, we're teaching. Do we want this? Do we want perfection? Do we want wholeness? Do I long to love God with heart, soul, mind, strength more than anything else in the world? Because if I don't want that, then I will not endure when trials come. Trials do exactly what they say in the tin, don't they? They, they test they probe, they examine. Many of our congregations are thinned out after COVID, aren't they? The, the trial of the pandemic, it, it, it reveals, it examines. What am I really living for? Who am I really living for, myself or God? And if we do want it, if we do want to be mature, number one, think clearly. Number two, ask boldly. Ask boldly, what time does this session go on to? One? One, yeah. Half twelve? Well, five. One. One. The, the boys at the back, they know what's happening. That's fine. <laughs> Some of you had your hopes up when David said half twelve, didn't you? So two, two more things. Ask boldly and boast rightly. I want, to, I want to just finish by looking at these two things. If this is tough, okay... Your trial, my trial, which feels like being in an unbearable furnace. Ask God for wisdom to see what it is. Ask boldly. Verse 5, it, it doesn't come naturally, does it, to ask, to treat trials like this. Looking at trials and counting them all joy is not a natural disposition of the human heart. You need wisdom for that. And look who you are asking if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. Now, nearly all translations use that word generous. God gives generously to all. But the commentators will tell you that another way of translating that adverb generously, it's the Greek word haplos. It's the only time that it's used here. And yet the the only times it's used in the New Testament, but the best guess from a lot of commentators about what that word could mean is that God gives simply, okay? Not just generously, but simply. And a lot of theologians think that this is a really clear indicator towards the doctrine of divine simplicity. The doctrine of divine simplicity is that God is not made up of constituent parts the way that you and I are made up, arms, legs, mind, emotion, God doesn't have parts of him that you can just parcel up and remove. Even his attributes are not separate. God, you, God is love, power, wisdom. He actually is those things. It's not that you can take any one of them away and still be left with a, a, a lot of God. 
Now, each of those things are what God is. He is power. He is love. They're all, all together in his being. And the fact that we give them those names is our human way of comprehending this completely perfect, all-sufficient God. What James is saying in chapter 1, verse 5 is, look, we are divided. We're all over the place. We're torn in all different directions. We're double-minded, but God is not like that. There is one God who gives himself to people. He's not in heaven, arms folded, scolding his people for finding a trial difficult. No, he he, he gives himself to his people when they ask. And th- this language here about asking in faith and not doubting, this doesn't mean that all true Christians never have doubts. That, that clearly can't be what it means. The opposite of faith is not doubt. No, the opposite of faith is unbelief. Somebody has said that doubt is simply faith thinking itself clear, wrestling with something. And that's where many of us are all the time, isn't it? Where, it's where I am often with things. Lord, is this right? How, how can this be happening? What does this mean? No, that, that's okay, that kind of doubting. What James, James means here by doubt, it's there in verse 7. It's the double-mindedness of it all. It's, it's the person who says, look, I really enjoyed that sermon today. I love God's wisdom on a Sunday, but Monday to Saturday they live by the world's wisdom. They like friendship with God on a Sunday, but friendship with the world on a Wednesday. They're, they're blown here, there, and everywhere. They cannot give themselves to what God says. They can't say to God, Lord, I long to follow you with all my heart. Heal me, help me. They, they, they pick and mix. They like a bit of Jesus, a bit of their own thinking, a bit of the Bible, a bit of the world, a bit of you, Lord, and a bit, a bit of everything else, please. You know, folks who, li- folks who live in Oxford and Cambridge say that every summer they get a real treat, don't they? Every summer they get to watch tourists try to board punts on the rivers in those cities. And every year they get to watch some unsuspecting person do the splits. One leg stays and the other leg goes. And it is painful and unpleasant and amusing if it's not you. And it is no stable basis for everything, is it? If you're looking to God for wisdom, but you're also getting most of your wisdom day to day from Twitter and Instagram, it will not lead to wholeness. Now, what God says, heart, soul, strength, and mind, I am all for you, Lord. Everything you say, that's what I want to live by. That, that is the kind of praying person God answers and hears. God is longing to school us like this. Number three, think clearly, ask boldly. Number three, boast rightly. I think it's very likely in the book of James that the greatest trial that these believers were facing was that they were poor and they were being persecuted by the rich. That's chapter two, verses five and six. It seems to be a real experience for them, doesn't it? Actual persecution by the rich. And the only way, James says, the only way to cope with the trials that come from money, the trials of not having enough money or having too much money, the only way to cope with it is to learn to boast about it rightly. If you are lowly, boast in the fact that in God's eyes you are exalted. Verse 9. And if you are rich, 
Boast in the gospel that takes you from way up here and puts you down here on the same level as everybody else. Boast rightly in the eternal kingdom, whether you are poor or rich. Let, if you're poor, let the gospel bring you up. If you are rich, let the gospel bring you down. Boast rightly in the eternal kingdom, in the crown of life. For like a flower of the grass, the rich will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, so also will the rich man fade away. You know, not long ago, I watched Cristiano Ronaldo on TV uh, before he signed, signed again for Man United. I watched him in an interview, and with perfect teeth and tanned, grinning face, he said, I have everything. I have everything. And straight away, I thought, yes, you have everything today, but what about tomorrow? Years ago, I watched George Best's funeral, profoundly moving funeral service, the greatest footballing superstar of the modern era. Everybody wanted a piece of George Best, and now I have to tell my football-crazy sons who he was. Never heard of him. Don't know him. He's gone. Oh, but the crown, the crown of life that God gives to the rich in faith and the heirs of the kingdom... Do you ever find yourself just wishing for a little bit more, just a little bit more money? Not the lottery, Lord, of course, that's crass, I'm a Christian, I wouldn't do the lottery, but just a bit more to be more comfortable, not, not to have to worry, a cushion, just to get, get by properly. And what we don't see is that if we had that more, if money took away all the stresses of life, we would just have a new battle to fight, wouldn't we, which is to not be comfortable with the passing riches of this world. Our friends, do not envy the rich. James is going to say that in chapter 5. We're going to look at that tomorrow, chapter 5. Do not envy the rich. Riches do not lead me to boast in the fact that in Jesus, God has lifted me up to the heavens, seated me with him in heaven. And when my financial pressure does not lead me to boast in my loneliness, then I have one foot in this world, one foot with God, and I am split. When my riches, my wealth, don't lead me to boast in the humbling cross of Christ and the things that will last forever, then I might be friends with God, but if I'm boasting in the things of this world, I am split. John Wesley said, do all the good you can to all the people you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can because you will not pass this way again. Gain what you can to give away what you can. James has a, a beautiful vision of the, the humble person who knows that in God's economy, things are not always what they seem. It is not the rich who win, but the lowly, the humble. Humility is the very essence of what James says wholeness is all about. The humble are on God's side. Let me just give you, to, to finish, verses 19 to 27, just let me give you, there are three pictures of the Bible in these verses, if you put your eyes on them, verses 19 to 27, three pictures that James gives us to show us what it means to begin to actually do something that leads to wholeness. The three pictures are, um, where are they? The Bible is an implanted word. Uh, 
Verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The Bible is a revealing mirror. Verse 22, be doers of the word and not hearers only. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. And thirdly, the Bible is a freeing law. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Loving the Bible is, is something that is just all over our evangelical churches, isn't it? Cornhill, Proclamation Trust, NEMA. Loving the Bible is right at the very heart of who we are and what we do. And James says in these, these last images here in chapter one, but doing it, friends, doing it is a whole different ball game. And simply loving the Bible by hearing it will not make you whole. You actually have to do it. You have to take what it says, leave where you are, and actually do what the Bible says. Now, what Dan's going to do, I think, in the next section in chapter 2, particularly from verse 14 onwards... I think this is a profound challenge to us, what James is going to say about living faith. Actually doing what the Bible says is the very sign that God is leading you to be whole. And ignoring it is the sign that splitness is there right at the core of our beings. Well, I'm going to finish. I'm going to finish there for this session. Shall I pray for us again? Maria? Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you speak to us, not simply to tell us how we need you, what is wrong with us at the core of our beings, but also to show us a vision of life with you, whole and complete, your word in the driving seat of our lives, governing every part of who we are. So may it be, we pray together. Heavenly Father, for those in our midst today who are carrying the kind of burdens that only they know, but you know and see as well. Oh, may you use these things to grow wholeness and completeness. Make us the kind of people in our churches who do not try to always fix or remove obstacles or difficulties, but rather have courage and faith to stand aside and let you work through the tears and through the heartache and sorrow to bring glory to Christ and completeness and perfection to us. So may you be at work like that, like that among us, we pray. We ask it in Christ's precious name. Amen. Nima. 